you're going to ostracize me for being who I am, you got to look in the mirror and see what's going on with you, right? I get to be me today. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of courageous individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Episode one of Our Collective Journey, courtesy of the Plugged In Media Network. Dave, thank you so much for working your magic. Rob, I don't know if you're here. He let me reading glasses. It's nice to hang out with old bastards because, oh, I can relate. My name is Poncho, and uh, we're surrounded by some amazing men, uh, men that were here, well, for episode zero. So, uh, Rick and Ryan and Damien, thanks for uh, joining us again. As always, looking good, smelling good. Is that a Foo Fighters shirt, or is that a pie symbol? Pie. I like math. (laughs) 3.14. This is why I went to summer school. So this is a podcast about mental health and mental illness and everything that runs in between. And as this series moves forward, we are going to be expanding and talking and delving into any number of issues. And we want to start by sharing, well, personal stories. And we feel that by doing that, hopefully it will bring courage to those that want to share our stories. And so Damien Davis, uh, you're in the spotlight. I love the fact that you've brought uh, a support group with you uh, because really that's incredibly important. You need that when dealing with mental health and mental illness, don't you? Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, me growing up uh, in southern Alberta, you just uh, you think you always have to do it on your own, and you you plow through things, and you attempt to use willpower to to just be the best version of yourself. And sometimes that doesn't work. And very grateful to have uh, Rick and Ryan, and yourself, Dave, and Rob, kind of. Uh, a part of this journey with us. And again, that's one of the stereotypes that we want to break down that we need to talk about shit that's happening in our lives. Why is it so important for you and for everybody to share their story? Why is it so important to shed light of the demons that we're dealing with up in the noggin? It's important for me because I found that, uh, I gain strength and I gain, I've gained everything because of my story. I used to to live in the past and dream about the future and um, forget about what it was like to live in the moment. Um, and today, because of what I've went through, um, I'm uniquely qualified to be sitting here today to share my story, hmm. uh, a, a story of uh, you know a lot of tragedy and suffering and, and also a, a story of resiliency and hope and, and what that looks like on the other side. And hopefully by me sharing my story today, uh, some people will, will be able to resonate with, with the words that uh, come out of my mouth and maybe they'll see that uh, their story matters and that they uh, can lend voice to, to others down the road that uh, may not have that voice yet. And do you ever have a story? Like you said, you got the ups, you got the downs, you got the, the tears, the anger, the frustration, the love, the emptiness, the sorrow, the happy endings. Well, not like the happy, you know, the happy, happy ends, you know, the back alley happy. I'm talking about an ongoing happy ending in terms of uh, mental health. Looking at you, you got your shit together. At least it certainly looks like you got your shit together, which, again, is a big part of mental illness. You wouldn't know from looking at these people, right? You got the nice quaff, you, you know, you well-groomed, well-dressed, in good shape. Really, p- people wouldn't know it that you have mental illness. Yeah, I think... Uh even to this day, being almost six years sober and 
um, leading a completely different life. There's, there's people from my old life who, you know, still don't recognize or don't, didn't recognize the, the issues that I, uh, had going on in my life while we, you know, grew up together and spent a lot of time sitting in bars and sitting in, you know, backyards, uh, drinking and drugging, um, because I didn't let people in. I kind of had an iron curtain up, uh, in an attempt to protect myself. But what I was actually doing was keeping people out. Okay. Let's head back. Okay. Let's go back to before everything went sideways. Um, I know a little bit about your story. You said it started with booze in, and it started with booze, not in your twenties, not in your late teens. Were you even a teenager before alcohol was introduced to your life? Yeah. In the seventh grade, I guess, you know, if I, if, if I really look back on, on my life, you know, I had a, a pretty normal childhood, you know, my, uh, I'm the oldest brother of, uh, three. I have, a um, a middle brother, um, who lives in, in Brooks, Alberta. And I have a youngest brother who lives here in Medicine Hat. And we grew up a fairly normal childhood, right? My, my dad worked in the energy sector. My mom worked in the uh, school district, district in Brooks. Um, you know, my mother was a, a sports mom. She took us to all the, uh, different sporting activities. My brothers and I did. My father was a coach, whether minor hockey, minor football, um, just was there. Right. We also had, you know, um, great grandparents, great uncles and aunts. We spent, my, my grandparents had a resort out in the shoe shop that we would spend our, uh, uh, summers, you know, with my grandparents, uh, hanging out. My other grandparents have a, a cabin out in Elkwater and we, we grew up fairly normally or so I thought. Right. Um, but I always kind of had this, this self doubt, this, this thing inside of me that made me feel worthless. And I remember in the sixth grade, uh, buying a brand new pair of, you know, baby blue Chuck Taylors. And, you know, I, I just so wanted to wear these shoes to school, but I remember putting them on in the morning and they were baby blue and, and the anxiety that filled me because I didn't want to be ostracized by the other kids that were in the school. And this, this feeling that, you know, I got to school and I had to take them off and I had to hide them because they were baby blue. Yeah. And so this, this really abnormal train of thought about the judgment of others upon myself really caused me some, some inner turmoil. And, and, uh, that kid, you know, progressed throughout grade six. I, uh, I suffered a, a loss of a friend in the sixth grade. You know, my best friend passed away and really, you know, my parents did the best they could with, with what they had. And tried. How, how did he pass away? Uh, he had an asthma attack. Okay. And, you know, I was there with him that night. I had just left and, you know, um, tragedy kind of struck and, um, yeah, he, he passed, um, I dealt with it the best way, you know, a, a kid in grade six could. How? Uh, you know, just being around my friends, you know, I don't, I don't really remember if there was really any crucial things that I did. I grieved, I, you know, how I thought I was supposed to. My parents were as supportive as they could be to me. So um, you, ha- you had a great family. It sounds like you had an amazing life growing up. I and, did. And then some, it sounds like you had a, a great bunch of childhood friends as well. I did. And you know what it was? I remember in the, sometime either the sixth or the seventh grade, I started wanting to hurt myself and I started, you know, voicing that I wanted to self-harm and I didn't know why. And my parents didn't know why. So they had me seeing a psychologist, uh, and a psychiatrist that were, you know, out of Brooks and, and supposed to be able to help children. And I don't remember a lot of those meetings. Um, I don't remember feeling any better, any worse, um, until the seventh grade. And that's when I first discovered alcohol. And 
I'll share a, the only story I'll really share about my, my drinking or my drug use was I, I, I stole a bottle of scotch from my father. I had no idea what scotch was. I didn't know what you mix it with, but I grabbed some orange juice. I figured, you know, scotch and orange juice would be a, a, an amazing mix. Right? Hang on. Out of all of the booze you decide to rip off, you decide to rip off scotch? Yeah, scotch and and this, I I have no idea, right? I'm I'm just a, a kid in the seventh yeah, grade. Okay, I got you. And, and I'm laughing because I love scotch, and you're asking what to mix it with, like nothing, nothing, yeah, well, ice. That's uh, what you mix it with. And so in the seventh grade, I uh, we went to this girl's house, and I drank the entire entire bottle of scotch um, with orange juice, and I got extremely sick, and I puked all over myself, and. They took my puke-filled clothes off. They put me in a dress. I was completely inebriated. I remember laying on this couch. I pissed myself in this dress, puked on myself again, you know, looking back on it by all intents and measures, you know, that should have been enough to stop me from ever drinking again. But I, I definitely remember waking up Saturday morning and thinking, fuck, was that awesome? Where did you wake up Saturday morning? Uh, on this couch full of piss, full of puke. And I remember thinking, fuck, that was amazing. Because for the first time in my life, the thing that had caused me so much anxiety and stress and turmoil of my brain, my thinking, it had stopped. It had slowed down. And the alcohol, you know, was the solution. I was still a star athlete in, you know, in sports. I played football. I played hockey. Uh, was on student council, was part of different organizations within when the, in the school, and, and everything was good. You know, I would party on weekends just like every other person that I grew up with in Brooks would party. We'd go out to bush parties. We'd go to house parties. I didn't think I drank any more. I didn't drink differently than anybody else. You know? so, so at this point, you, you, you're thinking your thoughts are just like everybody else's? Exactly. I thought if, you know, if I'm experiencing this, so is, you know, all of my, uh, all of my buddies that— uh, you know, I, I chose to call friends. Sure. But on the weekends, that was when like the, the, the alcohol would take all of that self doubt away. All that self hate would go away. And, you know, I could talk to people. I could, you know, hit on girls. I could have relationships. And I remember in the, I think it was the ninth grade. Um, I started to get bullied very like pretty severely. Right. Um, not only from older kids in the high school, but also from, you know, the girls in my friend circle, you know, they used to think I had big ears and they would call me Dumbo and the older kids in high school, they always, you know, I don't know why, but they just chose to pick on me, whether it was because I was good at sports or, you know, uh, friendly with the girls that were in high school, whatever it was. You were confident. You were confident. <laughs> I was confident on the outside, but on the inside, I was very, very scared. I was full of fear. Right. And, you know, I, I used that confidence to kind of excel me forward and to try and to do things and, you know, I was very empathetic to the the underdog as well because I myself was was like quite bullied. Um, I had to use violence, you know, in junior high and high school to fend for myself, and and I found that I was really good at the violence. You know, I, I loved picking fights, I loved finishing fights, I loved beating up older people, I loved that feeling of you're, something. Right, you were getting off on it. Eh, maybe getting off on it, but I was feeling something. Right, that wasn't the fear and the anxiety and the and the self hate that I had towards myself. Right. So a better way of saying it is kind of like booze. It's a form of escapism. A little bit. Yeah. 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 Definitely was. Sure. So, and if I if I was good at that, then people seem to accept me more because violence was you know, kind of how we grew up, you know, you, you, you're, you're a, you're a young man, you're a boy, you impose your will on other people and you step on other people's throats so that they won't, you know, it's that alpha mentality that, it, that we've all been raised with. You yeah, know? It, yeah. It definitely was. And that also came from, you know, my father, my father, 
you know, grew up in that same realm. And, and there was definitely corporal punishment in our family. There was, you know, there was uh, brief episodes of violence where, you know, uh, a belt and a spoon were definitely, you know, my, my parents' favorite things. Commonplace uh, back then. Yeah, yeah. To, to try and rein us in. Um, and that kind of got worse as I got older where, you know, I got bigger and my dad, you know, couldn't impose those things on me. So the confrontations became more um, two-way instead of one-sided. And you, as a son, you feel bad when you're having an interaction like that with your father. And, you know, the, the drinking didn't make it go away. It kind of made it worse at times because my father's also, you know, um, has been sober for 19 years. And he got sober towards the end of my high school um, days. So it's, you know, there's a whole dichotomy of how I grew up. And I guess there was, looking back on it, some dysfunction. But there was a ton of love there, too. Um taking it back to like the, the violence and the self-hate. Um, I remember kind of not feeling all right, you know, with that violence and that, that self-harm became something that I looked inward at now, instead of taking it out on others, I started wanting to hurt myself again in high school. Um, and I wasn't just drinking anymore. I was using cocaine, you know, using cocaine. So how old are you now when you're using cocaine? I started using cocaine in the ninth grade. Okay. So 13, you're introduced to booze. 14, 15, now you're fighting. Ninth grade, now you're doing drugs, hard drugs, cocaine. Yeah. You know, I think I, I skipped over the whole marijuana thing. I, it was, I'm, I'm sure I've done it. I, I know I've done it, but I just chose <laughs> not to do that because I didn't like the way it made me feel. The, the cocaine allowed me to drink longer, to stay up, you know, uh, for extended periods of time. And, and I guess I had FOMO. I didn't want to miss out on anything. So I always wanted to be the last one at the party. And, and I was good at it. Booze and drugs were like right in my wheelhouse. Did, did you know at this point that you were turning towards this destructive path in terms of coping? Or did you think at this point that, Hey man, this is just how you live your life. No, this is normal. Everybody sure. around me was doing, you know, something very, very similar. Um, and I was still highly successful in school, highly successful in sports. Um, you know, popular people liked me. People didn't, you know, in high school didn't bully me anymore because they knew not to fuck with me and those kind of things. Um, played junior hockey out in BC, you know, still again, not doing any uh, different partying behaviors than anybody else. Went to college um, in Calgary, got done with college, got hired by a, a major oil and gas service company here yeah, in wh Southern what Alberta. Did you, what did you go to college for? Uh, petroleum engineering. Okay. Yeah. And are you still adhering to these destructive behaviors in college that you were in oh, high school? Sure you were. Yeah, 100%. You probably upped it, right? Yeah, you know, now I'm living on my own and, uh, you know, with a, with a group of college buddies. You know, I, could, I, I have the capacity to rein it in. So, you know, I'm not an everyday drinker or drugger. I'm not a, I'm a binger. So when I was in college, I did, did fairly well. I, you know, you can rein it in when you need to, but then when it's go time... Friday, all bets are off the table. Friday hits, you, you get yourself an eight ball and you get all loaded up on booze and away you go. Yes. Yeah. You know, I think more booze and weed and a little bit of Coke in, in, in college, but still reined it in the capacity to, you know, to do okay in school. And from, um, from the outside, you're living a perfect life. It looks like it, right? I have relationships. I have girlfriends that, uh, you know, we're amazing women that, you know, uh, probably deserve to be treated better <laughs> by me than, than I, than I did. So you're in your late teens, early twenties. Have you figured out yet that you need help? Have you figured out yet that your way of thinking isn't necessarily? No, not, not necessarily. I, I okay. knew I, I, I knew I partied differently than everybody else, but there was, you know, it was like a badge of honor. You know, I can yeah. still do all these, uh, 
things and have, you know, women in my life. I can have success in my life. Um, and again, it propelled me through, through college, got hired by this major oil and gas service company, um, moved back to Brooks where I was working and, you know, right back on that train of, uh, work hard, play hard, no consequences. Right. But it's in my early twenties, you know, mid twenties was where kind of, I started to lose a piece of me. I, I, you know, there were periods of great fun, but then there was periods where it was kind of darkness and sadness. And the way I would cope with that was, you know, work hard for two weeks when I get my week off, get back out there with, you know, my friends, my social circle and, and drink and drug to kind of quiet the brain, get rid of the shame, blame and guilt and the chaos that I had created on my last binges. So this is slowly creeping into your life. This, this dark, these shadows are making your way where you're slowly having thoughts about your life and going, is this normal? Are, are we at a point in your life where you're having more bad days than good days yet? Because mental health, it's, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when that transition. No, happens. no, they're the, the good still outweighed the bad sure. significantly. And what it was, was I'd, I typically, I'd, I'd lose a relationship with an amazing female and, and that would cause me to maybe try and reframe what I was doing or to look out. I knew that I didn't drink or drug normally. I knew that my father had gotten sober with the 12 step program and because of the resent towards, you know, my family and my father and you know, how I grew up, I wasn't going to use a 12 step program to get sober. I was going to try every different Avenue. Right. So I remember reaching out to, you know, uh, ADAC at the time and talking to a counselor at ADOC and, you know, kind of going through the process to, try and figure out how to help me. Right. And you know, it was always, you know, an appointment every two weeks or, you know, not once did they say, you know, maybe you need to go to a 12 step program or maybe you need to go do this. And I would take their advice, but really at the end of the day, all I was attempting to do was selfishly get that relationship back. I wasn't really wanting to get well for me. I just wanted going through the motions, the pain and the emotions of losing this amazing relationship because of the chaos I had created. I wanted that back. So I was going to show her by, attempting to get help that I was worthy. And, and every time it didn't work and I would just go back into that same cycle of behavior, which was work hard, work harder and play harder. How old are you at this point in your life? I'd say mid twenties. Um, it wasn't until I moved back to Canada from living in the States. I lived in new Orleans for four years working in the energy sector. Um, and I took a year off from oil and gas and, and, you know, I really amped up my partying, right. I, uh, you know, Jesus amped it up. I mean, from what you've told me, I, there's not a whole lot more room to go. Yeah, no, there, there definitely was. <laughs> there is. Uh, you pushed the boundaries. Yeah, big time. You know, I was. It was. Uh, it was my solution, right? I always. Uh, I threw myself into into that that lifestyle because that's what I thought I was, right? I thought I was this person that could have high success and, you know, have women and have all these things and still drink and drug like a madman, right? But slowly it eroded my core. My soul started to go away and, and the, the come downs were greater. They were darker. They were deeper. And, you know, this self-destructive thought of, you know, not wanting to live the way I was living, um, started to become very real for me where suicide kind of became the option. It was an, it was a ever prevalent thought where, you know, I would just be, sitting there or, or being somewhere. And I would just think I need to die. I want to die. I don't want to live. Right. And so I made a choice to, to go to a 21 day entry or sorry, out of treatment program, uh, basically rehab here in medicine hat. And it was down at the provincial building. And, you know, 
it took me six weeks to get in there because there's a wait list. So, you know, I was suffering for a while and, and ended up getting in there and I didn't really identify as an alcoholic and an addict. I just had, you know, this, this pain, this suffering that I wanted to go away and I wanted to go in there and I wanted you to tell me what, what I was and then to give me the tools so that I could make this go away. And, you know, I don't think I really had any intentions on quitting drinking or drugging. I just, I wanted the pain to go away and I went in there and they, you know, I went through the 21 days and I thrived and I felt good. And, you know, I learned all these tools that they t teach you, like halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, play the tape forward, ask for help. Um, all these things, right? Hang on. What's, what's play the tape forward? Just as an example, what, oh, so, what is that? Yeah. So if I was to start drinking today, play the tape forward to where am I going to get to at the end? Right. And all amazing tools that the counselors there who are amazing people kind of gave to me. Um, however, you know, I was never able to use any of those tools um, because I have the disease of alcoholism and addiction. Right. Um, and it is a disease. Yeah, um, it is a disease. There isn't, there isn't a cure for addiction. There isn't a cure for mental illness. It's, it's about managing. I, I want to stop you for a sec. So how old are you at this point? 26, 27? Uh, 30. 30. Yeah. Okay. And you've almost at 30 years old, you've almost spent half of your life uh, abusing drugs and abusing booze. And from what you've told me, you've also lived an amazing life, right? I mean, hell of an athlete, great in school, your, your social life, you're right there at the top of your game. You put yourself through college. Now you're traveling abroad. You're seeing, I mean, by the time 30 is hit, you've lived a life that most people haven't lived in a lifetime, the good and the bad. Oh yeah. It even gets, you know, I can laugh at it today and say it even gets better from a, from a, a rock star life standpoint, you know, in the next couple of years after I got out of rehab. But I remember being in rehab and I heard somebody say, you know, you're always going to be sick. You're always going to be in recovery. Right. However, nobody told me that I have this disease of alcoholism and addiction. And, and I was sober for 10 months. You know, I moved back to Brooks. I'm 30 years old. I have all this success, but I'm living in my parents' basement and I was sober and I was fucking crazy. And so I, I wanted to kill myself for an extended period of time while living in my parents' basement and not drinking, not socializing, isolating from people, afraid to go back out into the world because I know if I go back out into the world, I'm probably going to end up picking up booze and start uh, using drugs again, and then I'll be right back where I was, right? And it got so insane that I made a conscious choice that, you know, I thought if this is what sobriety looks like and this is the thought pattern that I have that I just want to harm myself on a daily basis – that I'm going to go back out and drink a drug because at least if I'm drinking and drugging, then this turns off. Right. And so I went back out and I remember, yeah, sitting there and I drank that first drink and I was like, Oh, relief. Where yeah. were you? Where you said you were drinking it, that first drink in, in the local hotel in, in Brooks. Right. Yeah. So you go there and it's the same people that, you know, have been waiting for you for 10 months to, to show back up and you do. And, you know, nobody asks you where you've been or what you went through, but, and, and I'm not offering that, you know, I'm keeping all of that, they know inside they know, of me, though, don't they? Maybe I, I, I honestly don't know because those are things that we never ever talked about. We talked about war stories about our past and how much fun we had and different uh, different nights of drinking and partying, and and we didn't really talk about anything other than surface stuff, right? Does it feel good to be drinking at this point? I mean, oh, it feels great. Sure, for the first time, I'm not thinking about harming myself, and so that everything quiets down, and you know, very quickly in rapid succession, I'm back where I was ten months ago you know, drinking and drugging the way I used to, except for now it's kind of a little bit darker and a little bit deeper because I'm, I'm using more and I'm drinking more. And instead of, 
you know, just drinking around where I was at, I decided I, I work in oil and gas. So I go away for a month. I live on a rig. And when I came home, I decided I'm going to live in Calgary, but I'm going to live in a hotel downtown, you know, a really nice hotel, get a suite and I'm going to live the rock star life. And one day I would be in Calgary. The next day I'd be in New York. You know, I'd come back, go to work at a rig, come home, live in a hotel, you know, lots of women, lots of, you know, drugs, lots of booze filled with a lot of shame, a lot of blame, a lot of guilt about, you know, hurting people, lying to people, manipulating people. And it just slowly eroded my soul away. Right. So, um, so when you're not partying and you're not working, are, are you sitting in a, in a dark place, literally and, and figuratively, are you still having suicidal thoughts? Yeah. From time to time. It's usually when, you know, you, I was either coming down off of drugs and, and alcohol or, I wouldn't have drugs and alcohol in my life for a, a period of time. And then all of a sudden my brain would turn on and the, you're worthless. You don't deserve this. You should hurt yourself. You shouldn't be here. You're a piece of shit, whatever that looks like. And you've convinced yourself at this point, anybody with mental illness knows this because you are living an amazing life, but you have convinced yourself that the world is better without you than it is with you. Yeah. Yeah. Basically it's, I'm tired of hurting people. I'm tired of not showing up you know, at Thanksgiving and at Christmases, I'm tired of, you know, the pain I'm putting my brothers through the, the, the chaos that they're having to live with because of me. And, and, you know, that, that thought pattern of you should just not be here and it'd be easier on them was just ever prevalent. Right. Um, not to the point where, you know, I, I had gotten to the point where I was going to take action quite yet, but it was just always there, just always kind of nagging on me. Right. Um, and I would, I, I I was sick after a while of living this rock star lifestyle of, you know, traveling and drinking and partying. And I decided to walk into the, the rooms of this 12 step fellowship again. And I sat in the rooms and I thought, you know, I remember in rehab, they said 90 meetings, 90 days, meeting makers make it. And I went and I sat in these rooms and I had these people sharing a message to me, but I wasn't either ready to hear it or the message wasn't the correct message. And I got sick, you know, I was in that room, in those rooms for about a year, you know, attempting to stay sober, wanting sobriety more than anything else in the world. I was desperate. And the people in those rooms were giving me all sorts of different opinions on how to do this. And I didn't do the work. Um, I just sat in meetings. I attempted to learn by osmosis. And again, after a year of not drinking, the insanity of, of my disease inside of my brain caused me to say, fuck it again. I'm going back out because at least then this turns off. I'm not thinking about hurting myself. And again, I went back out. So for the second time I've reached out for help. haven't really heard the message that I needed to hear, went insane while not drinking or drugging and made a choice to go back out. Right. And I bet the excessiveness gets even more excessive. And I bet the dark times get even darker because you need more to get that escapism. And what even adds to it, you know that you need to get better. You've already been provided with at least somewhat of an inroad of tools to help you get better. And, and you're not at this point. No. Yeah. hundred percent. So you become resentful towards all these institutions, sure. all yeah. these people, all these, these things that, you know, I just, I'm, 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 I thought I was a bad person, you know, that all the things that I was doing made me bad and the chaos I created and the people I hurt and this, this life of selfishness, you know, define me as a bad person. And that was the furthest thing from who I thought I was when I was growing up. Right. It's like it had stripped me of all my values and all my morals. And here I was, you know, 
at 36 years old, ready to die and to forsake everything that, you know, my parents had ever brought me up with or the people in my life or sphere of influence had ever, you know, instilled upon me. Do your friends and family at this point know that you're suffering? Oh, yeah, my family definitely did. You know, I have two brothers that have been sober for 16 years and 13 years. My father's 19 years. My mother's normal. She, you know, would never drink or drug like I did. She can have a half a glass of wine and shut it down. And they see, they, they see what you let them see or so I thought, but they really saw everything, right? They, they seen that I was hurting that the things, the dreams that I had had as a kid, which was to be a father and to be a husband and to, you know, live this life. Yeah. This life that I didn't think I deserved, you know, that was slipping, you know, and I started telling my brothers and started telling myself you know what? I don't want to get married. I don't want kids. I don't want these things because it was easier to tell myself that. And if it came to fruition, I wouldn't be as devastated than to actually doing something about it, getting help, getting sober, and then putting myself out there to chase my dreams. You know, I, I lived inside this box that I thought was protecting me from hurt, that I was, that was protecting me from pain and sorrow. But what I was doing was I was just keeping everybody else out. You know, I was, it, it wasn't working. My parents could see it. I'm not sure. You know what? That's untrue. There was friends, really close friends that could see the suffering I was going through and always, you know, saw me bigger than I saw myself. However, I never, you know, I'd always slough it off. Anything, any good compliment everybody would, anybody would give me, I would say, you know, nah, you know, thanks, no thanks. Um, because I just, I hated who I was. I hated who I had become. Um, up until I walked into the rooms of this 12-step fellowship for the last time um, on December 19th, uh, 2014. That was, the, that was the day that changed your life? It was one of the days that, that gave me an opportunity to change my life. What, right? was, the, what was the lowest point, Damien? When, like, when was it the absolute darkest for you? That would have been almost two months later. So Two it, months later. It was. So, um, you know, I, I got hope in several different aspects, but, you know, the, the disease of alcoholism and addiction is insidious. It's, it's always there. It'll always be there for me. Um, but, yeah, I walked into the room's of this fellowship on December 14th, or sorry, December 19th, 2014. And I sat in this room and I was, you know, I was on steroids. I was just coming off my last binge. I was bearded. Steroids too. Oh yeah. Everything. I was. Like, okay. So, so booze, drugs, women, and now you're on the juice. Yeah. Well, I was, <laughs> I was on a, a month long trip to Costa Rica and, you know, if you're going to the beach in Costa Rica, you might as well look jacked. And <laughs> I went down to Costa Rica, you know, with an amazing group of people. And I was fucking coked out for a month. Did you, you wear the, were you rocking the banana hammock? Uh, for part of it. Oh yeah, of oh, course. You know, that's, so yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of my story too. <laughs> but I remember coming back here and, you know, I knew, I knew I was done. I didn't know I was done. I knew I was suffering. Um, to the point where I, and to be honest, Pancho, I had no idea why I moved to Medicine Hat. You know, I have a brother that lives here, but I bought a house. I didn't have any furniture. I was just living in this house, you know, on a blanket, watching the big TV that I bought. I, I remember my last time out, um, I had an option to go to Irvin and play hockey or to go to Brooks to a house party, a Christmas house party. And I had full intentions on going to Irvin, but something compelled me to turn right on the highway and head west. And the whole drive to Brooks, 
I felt like vomiting. I was nauseous. Everything inside of me was telling me I didn't want to go there. I had beer in my truck. I had phoned a drug dealer that was going to meet me at the party. I got to the party, opened that first beer. And as soon as I took that first drink, the nauseousness, the anxiety, everything stopped. Gone. Gone. And that was also the exact moment that I knew I'm fucked because alcohol is not my problem. Alcohol is my solution. Alcohol is the thing that turns my brain off, that causes me not to feel all these things that human beings feel, right? And I still didn't stop that night or the next day. But when I was driving back into Medicine Hat that Sunday night, coming over the hill to come down into Medicine Hat and cross the bridge. It's a beautiful view, by the way, if, 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 if you've never done it. Yeah. Right, you come around that corner and boom, there's the mighty South Saskatchewan right in medicine hat nestled in there and this is your home even though you have a home with no furniture and it just yeah. a, just the tv and so literally it was brighter than it had ever been and at that exact moment not a whisper not a yell but a voice and this sounds hokey but for me it's it's so true there was something that said this is where you're supposed to get sober that doesn't sound hokey man uh, but it, it, for me, I had to look in the passenger seat. There was nobody there, but there was something that said that to me. And I was like, broke down as I'm driving down the hill. And I didn't know where to go, but I knew that at the Alano Club, there was a noon meeting the next day. And I got there and I was sitting there and, you know, I have a beard. I'm full of tattoos. I'm on steroids. I'm jacked. I'm homicidal. I'm suicidal. I'm hurting. And for the first time, I heard a man say, my name is so-and-so. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I thought, fuck him. You can't say that. You can't say that you're recovered. You're always going to be sick, you know? But something in what he said allowed me to talk to him at the end of the meeting, right? And I don't remember a single word that was said in that entire meeting, but I do remember that one word, recovered, right? And I talked to him and he talked to me and, and he could feel where I was at. And he gave me his number and I gave him mine. And I knew I needed to do something. I needed to do something different than I had ever done before. Do you have a girlfriend at, at this point in your life? Do you, do you have people that are, are close to you? Uh, no. Well, I have, no, I don't. I, did, I, did you push them away? Uh, yeah. For all intents and measures, you know, cause was, that happens too. Yeah. I was pretty toxic. I was pretty, pretty broken. And, and I, and I bet you don't blame them. You're like, cause you feel so goddamn low about so, yourself. So here's the amazing thing about, you know, a lot of the relationships I had in my life is that, the women that I dated always saw me bigger than I ever saw myself. And I'm still friends with a lot of them in spite of all the shit that I brought to the table. I still care for them and they still care for me and we can still talk. Right. Um, but at that point, you know, yeah, I was broken, alone, afraid, homicidal, suicidal, homicidal. What do you mean when you say homicidal? I just hated the world. I wanted to kill everybody. I wanted, I wanted you to feel the pain that I was feeling. You know, I wanted to come into whatever room and just, for you to feel this, this chaos, this pain, this bewilderment, this torturous life that I was living. Right. And it was like, there was this void inside of my chest that was black and that's all I felt. And that's all I thought about. And the darkness was just there constant. And, and suicide, had you tried taking your own life? It hadn't gotten to that. No, I had never attempted suicide. You know, actually let's rephrase that. I had attempted to OD lots, you know, sitting in a hotel room by myself, the fourth day of my binge thinking, 
God, let this line be the one that ends me. God, let this line be the one that ends me. And you accept, and you accepted that. Yeah. You yeah. accepted that thought going, Hey, this, this is how I, you've convinced yourself. This is how you want it to end. Yeah. I, I wanted <laughs> lots of times, you know, I would, I would ask God or the universe or whoever to just, just, just take me. I'm done. I'm done with this. You know, have in a, I have a lot of questions for you at this point in your life. Have you actually got in touch with your feelings? Have you broke down and, and cried, sobbed? Yeah, lots. There's there's lots of times where I would, you know, be that way with my family or, or people. And it was usually, you know, when things got super dark and people would be there for me and I you'd just you would break down and you would want you would want them to support you, but them not knowing how was always the kind of downfall. You know, only there's only so much love that your mom can give you and only so much love that your brothers can give you. It has to come from within me. I had to choose to do something about it. And like I said, that day when I met that man who said that he was recovered, he told me that I need to take action, that I need to do the steps of this program and I need to do them quickly so that I can take care of my disease. He explained to me what my disease is. Nobody had ever explained to me that I had a disease. I always thought it was a choice. You know, I can choose to drink this way or that way. And I can control this, that I'm the powerful one in this, this equation, right? Yeah. It's just like if you're in a bad mood, oh, I'm in a bad mood. That's something that I can change. Mental illness doesn't work like that. Yeah. It, it, it definitely didn't for me. And it still doesn't to this day. And sure. so this, this man, you know, Quick story about him is that, you know, I was so ashamed of who I was. And so I had no confidence at this point where maybe I had a ton of confidence when I was growing up. I had none now and I wanted him to help me. And I seen him a few times over the next couple of days and I was too proud or too scared to ask him to help me. Typical man, right? Got to keep those feelings bottled yeah, up. Got to be the, the stereotypical macho. We don't talk about shit. We don't cry. Yeah. So what I did was I shot him a text and said, hey, can you sponsor me? And <laughs> my whole train of thought was it's easier to get rejected via text than it is to have another human being reject you face to face. Right. And his exact words were, what took you so long? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, perfect. And I was desperate. You know, I was, I was drowning in this misery and this void inside of me. And and he showed me um, how to get sober. Now, he didn't tell me how to. He showed me through his experience and showed me through, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, how to get and stay sober. Um, and I did exactly what he told me to do based out of what this book. Is, is that what that book is right yeah, there? So, so I have the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in front of me. I carry it with me pretty much everywhere I go. Um, and he showed me a lot of different things in there. He showed me number one, that I can get recovered and not anything that I say about this book, Pancho, I say, um, and I can reconcile it with what's in this book, right? I don't have an opinion because my opinion could kill another person who's an alcoholic or an addict. And he showed me on the title page how it says recovered, right? It says, uh, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And it's, I can tell you, you use that book a lot. I, I mean, you have tabs in there and I can just tell from looking at it that it's, it's well used. It is. It's, this is my textbook for how I live life today because at 18, nobody handed me a textbook and said, Hey Damien, this is how a human being is supposed to live life. I had to suffer for fucking 26, 28 years of my life going through hell, going to the, you know, the darkest places that a human being can go to, to get to a place where somebody said, here's the textbook for life. Not something that I just read and then put back up on the shelf. So this, this was the game changer. This is the guy who said, Hey, stop being a damn victim and 
learn how to empower yourself so you can get better. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to wake up, and then the next day you're not going to wake up. Right. And and that was that was exactly it. It was you know I don't uh, I don't come into the rooms of the fellowship and get sober. I get sober through my action. Right. And he took me into the book and he showed me exactly what I was. And you know one of the things that. I always thought I had was that willpower. You know, I've, I've, I've been a highly successful man my entire life and it was through sheer willpower alone. I'll work harder. I'll do more so that I can have success. But when it came to drugs and alcohol, that was, that was not, um, ever the case, you know, no matter how hard I tried, it always came back. And what he explained to me on the very first, like in-person meeting we had, he explained to me what the disease concept of alcoholism is. Number one, it's physical. So when I, put booze into my body. I have something that happens, which is called the phenomena of craving. I'm basically allergic to booze. I have to have more, right? The second part of my disease is the mental obsession. So I said multiple times today that, you know, the thinking part of my, my life was what really had caused me issues. Well, when the obsession to drink comes to me, I am compelled to do nothing but that in spite of, you know, um, wanting to go play hockey in Irvine that day and knowing that, you know, that's where I wanted to go. The obsession caused me to turn right, drive down the highway and put booze in my body. And once I put booze in my body, the phenomena of craving kicks in, the phenomena of craving kicks in. I have to have more. That's, that's how addiction works. Yeah. Isn't it? So there is no, you know, have one and go away. However, bouncing in and out of this program for seven years before I finally got it, I could go every once in a while and have just one beer at the bar and think, you know what? I got this. I'm not, how could I be an alcoholic? If I'm an alcoholic, then I'd have to get fucked up right now. Right? So I would justify that. So the obsession takes over. I'm compelled to do it. I put it in my body. I'm allergic. The third part is I'm spiritually sick. I have a spiritual malady. Nobody ever explained that to me. Right? I always thought that booze was my problem. If I take away booze, my life's going to be perfect. Right? That's not it at all. And I think I've said over and over today is booze was my solution. It was, it was your vice. It, it was, was your my escape. solution, right? It was the thing that made life bearable for me. And again, over my story, you know, when you take booze away for extended periods of time, my brain kicks in, the obsession kicks in, and it, it it's actually like being insane is how I can equate it, right? So the book and my sponsor taught me very quickly that I had to get spiritually well, right? So if I take care of the spiritual malady part of my disease, the other two will straighten up automatically. I don't even have to do anything, you know, to, to get rid of the obsession or to get rid of the craving because if the obsession isn't there, I don't put it in my body. And if I don't put it in my body, the allergy and the phenomena of craving doesn't kick in. Right. Once an addict, we're always addicts. Always. And the book tells us that I'll never be cured. It says I'll always be an alcoholic. It's a disease. It is. And today I'm very grateful that I'm an alcoholic because I do have a template on how to live life. You know, first three steps, trust God. Steps four through nine, uh, clean house. 10, 11, and 12, help others, right? What do you mean when you say clean house? You, you, you Be responsible for your life. Yeah, you don't mean going home and, and plugging in the fucking Electrolux and pulling out the Swiffer. No, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a, an easy way to say, you know, keep your side of the street clean. You know, I, I have to be responsible. I led a life full of victim where it was like, if only this would happen, if only this girl took me back, if only I had this job, if only this, if, if only, only that. And then blaming people. My dad used to beat me up. You know, my mom wasn't there for me. If you would have had that in your life, you would drink and drug like I do, I do, right? It was never your fault. Never, never. You know, it was always somebody else's fault for why 
I was like I was. And, and this man sat me down very quickly and said, you know, you're the only common denominator in every situation of your life. You know, no matter how good or how bad you have a part to play in this. And it was like, holy fuck. All right. You know, so he opened your eyes where nobody else or, or, or nothing else could, even though you had been, I guess, put through your, your stereotypical motions of, you know, this is how you get better, but nobody really told you what you need to get better. They gave you the tools, but they didn't tell you where to start, how to start. And this guy did. Yeah, he did. So, you know, I can't, I couldn't use any of the tools that I learned in rehab when the mental obsession was still there, right? So there was no way of, of using halt or playing the tape forward or asking for help because when that obsession comes, it's so compelling. It's going to drive me to do the one thing that's killing me. And I don't even know it's killing me. Right. And my disease is always there looking for a chink in the arm or just like, Hey Damien, I'm here. I'm here. And it always will be. And you know that. Yeah. And so I have this awareness today that that voice in my head, that's not even me. <laughs> that's my disease trying to say, come back. You know, it wants me dead but it'll settle for me drunk. And it's just looking for me not to be, not to be spiritually fit today so that it can draw me one step closer back to where I was. Right. Do you think recognition is, is the single biggest first step in terms of getting better? <sighs> for me, it wasn't, you know, I always knew that I, I drank and drugged abnormal to most people. Um, but what drew me back into the rooms this last time had nothing to do with booze. I was just, I didn't want to die. I was trying to survive. And as a result, you know, I learned that, uh, this disease that I have is something that, you know, I'll never be cured of. And the awareness around that is kind of freeing for me, you know, because it doesn't hold me back. I don't have to feel shame and blame about being an alcoholic or an addict anymore. I actually, I'm proud. When did that start? When, when did you see that switch in life? When did the flip switch? So that would have been, you know, the day after the darkest day of my life where I was, you know, 40 some days sober and still a little bit insane in the head, but I was doing the program. I was in action, attempting to live the life, life by the, the live life on life's terms, so what, to speak. What made that day so dark? Uh, I was just suffering. The, the disease was in my head and it was, talking to me very, very loudly. And it was like, you don't matter. You don't need to be here. And that was the one time that I consciously made a choice that I was going to harm myself. And for some reason it never came to fruition, but I was able to share where I was at the next day in this large group of people and shift a personal development seminar from, you know, people wanting financial success to actually people hearing my story, hearing my suffering and them resonating with it. And, you know, six other people in the seminar were like, yes, I'm feeling the same way. I feel hopeless. I'm thinking about hurting myself. And that was the moment where I realized that I have to say something, that my story matters, that it's not just for me to keep to myself, that I have to share it with the world because it might be somebody else's survival guide, right? You need to share it for your mental health. And you need to share it to let others know that they are not alone. And I think that's a huge part of what our collective journey is all about, to let you know that you're, you're not alone. I want to fast forward a little bit because are you married now? I am. You got kids? I got three little boys. How old? Uh, three and a half, uh, 
two and like 39 days. Oh, so you're, you're still changing diapers, man. Oh, big time. Have, have you know, have you gotten faster? You ever time yourself when you're changing diapers? Oh, it's just as long as you can hold your breath. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't change. I could be a deep sea diver now, man. And I, before I was changing diapers, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah. 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 So, so you're back on track. You're living obviously a, a much happier life, a much healthier life, but you still have to contend with all those thoughts and those feelings. I bet those, because those dark days are, are probably not that far away if, if you let it slip. Yeah. So to, today I, I have to do uh, a few specific things on a daily basis to become outwardly focused. What is that? Can you share that? Yeah. So, you know, I'm part of this 12 step fellowship and it's, I'll say God, but when I say God, I mean creator, the universe, whatever. So I've learned how to live spiritually, um, which for me is uh, different than any religious affiliation. I grew up in the church, church, um, have a lot of religious background, but today I get to live with a one-on-one relationship with something that's greater than myself. Right? When you're talking God, you're talking faith, whatever does it for you, whatever you believe in. Yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. It's just something that I can't put my finger on it, but I know it's there and it's hope. It, yeah. Hope it's allowed me to go through everything I went through and then to be here today, just being okay, being me. Right. And if I do those things, you know, I learned how to, I learned how to pray properly. I learned how to pray to be of service to, you know, my fellow man, um, how to use my story to help other people. And when I use that on a daily basis, when I'm outwardly focused, when somebody reaches out and needs a hand or needs to, uh, or is hopeless and just needs somebody, I'm willing to answer the bell at any time of day, 365 days a year, because that's how I stay sober, right? And, and you are. And when you say you're willing to answer that, you do. You do every single day. Do you think you'd be here today? If it, if it wasn't for that, you know, if it wasn't for that turnaround, if it, if it wasn't for that super low dark point and, and making the decision to get better? No, not at all. I, I, you know, I'm, I didn't want to be that person that was homeless and destitute and had nothing. And, you know, a quick, violent, uh, selfish way of not getting there would have been to end my own life. And I think that, you know, I would have ended up there. Damien, I, w- I want to go out on, on a high note. Are you happy? Happy isn't even even the, a good word for it. I'm. I couldn't have asked for a better life. You know, I have no, I have no regrets on my past. I'm planning and taking action to ensure I have a better future. I understand today that I'm on this planet for a reason, and that reason is to be, you know, a causal agent of change for the better. Um, I'm very grateful that I have three little boys that I get to love and dote on and, and maybe break that cycle. You know, I can really look back on my life and, and see that my dad did the best he could with what he had. And he started the breaking the cycle chain, right? My brothers have broken the cycle for their families and for our family. And I'm doing the same thing for my three little boys, right? Um, I have good days. I have, I have amazing days and I also have dark days, right? And that's okay because today I have, you know, the small, not even small, I have an awareness that these voices in my head, these negative self-talk, you know, these, this thing that used to be ever present in my life isn't me. And I have some tools today where literally the stuff I learned in rehab about halt, are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? 
My wife will ask me that. I'm like, yeah, well, shoot, I haven't eaten all day today. That's why I'm a little bit surly. That's why I'm a little bit off. Have I helped another alcoholic or an addict or just another human being today? No. And I get out and I get into action. I get to be that example for my sons um, so that maybe one day they don't have to sit around talking about these topics that we're talking about. Maybe it'll just be ever prevalent that that's how they grew up, that they can talk about whatever's going on inside their heads, inside their hearts. And it's normal, right? Where we're not, where Rick, Ryan and I and yourself don't have to have these conversations to break the cycle or to create conversation that that's just the way life is. Right. And, and I know, uh, Rick and Ryan, I know you haven't said much. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. Just being here says everything. So I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for being here. Uh, Damien, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm sure you've told it several times and I'm sure it doesn't get any easier but the fact that you did, you are giving hope to so many people. And I think you were telling people that, you know, you, you do have a choice. But, and, and it starts with sharing it, getting those feelings out. Any final thoughts before uh, we wrap up episode one? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, each and every one of our experiences is our experience, right? And whatever you're feeling right now is right. There is no right or wrong to what's going on with you. Um, I've been, you know, at the lowest of lows and I've also living a life that's exciting and I'm thriving and it's all a result of the action I take to help other human beings, right? Selfishly today, I'm doing this so that I can stay sober and I can, you know, maintain what I have in my life. And if you're out there and any of this resonates with you, if you're suffering, if you're alone or if you believe that, you know, you're one of us, reach out, you know, say something because you matter. Um, your story matters and the world needs you. Damien, thank you so much. I guess we'll finish it right there. Is, is there any smooth way to go out? The only thing I want to say is that, you know, uh, after we're all done here, you really got to tell me what kind of brand of mustache wax you use because I don't like the kind that I have. Yeah, Fireman Fred's. Fireman Fred's? Write that shit down. Fireman's. Fred or friend? Fireman's friend? No, Fireman Fred. Fireman Fred? Yeah. Of course, that makes sense. When you think of firefighters, you think of impressive mustaches. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much, Poncho. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Contact Our Collective Journey on Facebook at Our Collective Journey or on the web at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by Poncho Parker. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive Check out this and our other great podcasts at pymedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.